Welcome everyone to Bulldog Bites, practical tips for busy GCs. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a partner of Womble Carlisle's Business Litigation Practice Group. With me today are Ted Claypool, one of my partners who does a lot in the data and privacy area. You heard Ted participate in a previous podcast dealing with uh, sensors and wearable technology. Today, our guest is David Hartkin, Emeritus Professor at UNC Charlotte, who's an authority on transportation planning and policy. David, thanks a lot for being here. Could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Yes. Well, I'm recently retired from uh, UNC Charlotte. Uh, I'm running a small consulting company called the Hartkin Group. I was at UNC Charlotte for almost 20 years. And before that, I was in government in New York State. So I've seen all of the issues related to transportation. I have graduate degrees from Northwestern University, and my undergraduate degree is from Duke. Great. Thank you. Our topic today is autonomous vehicles. As we know, the idea of an autonomous vehicle has moved from science fiction to science fact with most major car manufacturers working on some type of artificial intelligence system to make cars drive themselves with, you know, without a driver. I know Google and Tesla have announced some efforts, although there's also a lot of regulatory concern about what's going on and how. I wanted to start maybe with definitions. You provided a, an excellent article. And I found uh, just talking about the scope, there was some good terminology. And although I captioned this autonomous vehicles, I think the term driverless vehicle um, may be a, a better term because there's a lot of autonomy right now in vehicles. But tell me a little bit about your what, what do you think the right terminology is and how should we think about the, the, the broader area? Well, you're right. It is a... Uh area that we're just getting used to the language. Uh, some folks call this autonomous vehicles. Uh, some call it self-driving cars. Some call it uh, advanced technology or advanced communication. So uh, there are different terms floating around. I think in the, in the planning side of transportation, most people are using the phrase self-driving cars. And in other areas, particularly in manufacturing, the phrase autonomous vehicles uh, seems to be a common most folks uh, think of this as a Buck Rogers kind of thing where you simply get in the car and speak to the car version of Siri and off you go. Uh, you'll say something like office or home or shopping uh, or groceries and uh, Zoom. Uh, we're not there yet, obviously, although we're getting there quite quickly. Um, there are self-control elements in, in most current cars. Uh, we have braking systems, we have uh, electronic communication systems, we have some vehicle sensing systems where uh, your vehicle may sense the presence of other vehicles. And more recently, there are lane control systems where vehicles are kept uh, in line or are monitored for speed. Uh, these, of course, all still require driver uh, behind the wheel, if you will, to manage the system and to act uh, from human intelligence uh, if necessary. But we're moving quite quickly into uh, particularly higher-end vehicles now, higher-priced vehicles. We're yeah, moving I have to say, just as a quick aside, this is Ted, that my car hates the way I drive. Um, <laughs> it doesn't like it doesn't like uh, moving lanes right. uh, back and forth. It doesn't like uh, the, the excessive speed. It buzzes me on my seat in a number of places uh, if, if it is disapproves of what I'm doing. Right. Um, it's interesting how 
the transition is going to be between yeah. the current set of autonomy and yes. a total autonomy where yes. we won't be driving at all. Right. So the engineering profession and the manufacturing element of the cars uh, is uh, treating this as a, a staged development that will occur over probably several decades. And it may be uh, several more decades uh, beyond the first two into the into the 2050s before we see a significant share of the fleet of vehicles nationwide um, be able to have these features. Professor, uh, do you see it more likely happening right away in 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 our sort of consumer vehicles or in industrial or trucking or or warehousing or other or vehicles for um, commercial purposes? Well, I think initially, and this may surprise the audience, but I think initially the fastest moves will be in the trucking sector. And there are several reasons for that. Well, first of all, the opportunity to uh, remove uh, labor from the vehicles, and, and particularly in delivery services. I'm speaking here now largely of small package delivery services. You can't remove all the labor, obviously. In most uh, large package or, or pallet systems, the folks at the other end are the ones who provide the labor to unload the vehicle. The driver doesn't do that. So it, unless that legal and social environment changes, there's likely to be more focus initially on small package delivery where you were essentially sent a message that the UPS-type truck is downstairs and you need to go get the package. These kinds of proposals have moved quite quickly, and uh, they're all in the test phase now. Uh, there's quite a bit of interest in that. On the consumer side, I think it's going to take a lot longer. The big benefits are safety. People think that this could reduce accidents by a very large amount, perhaps as much as 80 or 90 percent. And secondly, in the productivity side, that is, people can do things in the vehicle while they're being transported to some other location. The concerns are still there, though. Uh, there's a considerable reluctance on the surveys that has been reported that uh, a significant share of the population is not sure about the safety issue. And then when you think a little bit more about the productivity question, that's also open to uncertainty. It basically depends on what the value of time is. And in commuting, for instance, planners use one-half the average wage rate as the value of time. But for many other shopping uh, activities, uh, family deliveries, uh, drop off the kids, the value of time is considerably lower. So it may be that the incremental price of the newer vehicles that have this technology uh, may be greater than the value of time that you get out of the improved productivity. Uh, the best estimates so far are roughly half of the population is interested enough to consider it. The other half, folks like me, I guess, wouldn't touch it with a pole. <laughs> so that's the long-range view. The, the shorter view is, well, when is this going to happen when we have you know, 20% of the fleet in this technology in, in, in the next 12 years, which is roughly the turnover rate? So it could happen quite rapidly, particularly with some of the more straightforward features, vehicle communications between vehicles and vehicle to infrastructure communications, uh, where you're sent messages from the, the, the stop sign or the interstate uh, speed control system. 
That's interesting. You know, as a uh, as a parent with a spouse that spends literally two or three hours a day driving children around to events that she doesn't need to attend, the idea of an autonomous vehicle that can go, you know, take the kids, sit there and come back and let her do uh, other productive stuff right. certainly has some appeal. You, you touched well, on something. My mom would yeah. love it, too. I mean, right. she's getting to the point where her, she's not driving as well as she used to. And That's right. Is, uh has already using the uh, autonomy um, in the vehicle that she has to help back up, to help do things that she has trouble with and would, you know, is hoping that we get this fast enough that it'll uh, yes. allow her to stay independent longer. Right. And there are, there are some very important specialty markets within the consumer uh, area. One of those, as you mentioned, is elderly folks who are uh, getting along in life and have problems with high-speed driving, as we see on the interstates, for instance. Uh, but also individuals with various disabilities, uh, the shuffling of kids, the chauffeuring uh, issues. It's possible that the vehicles will have alternate modes available. And essentially, you push a button and it'll go into AV mode where the control is taken from you. And the destination, of course, has to be specified. But on the other hand, the vehicles would also then need to be operated in a traditional manner, and particularly for short trips or for trips in which it's likely to have an issue with changing routes, for instance, in, at bottlenecks on commuting roads. Uh, drivers might not feel secure enough with the ability of autonomous vehicles to select another route if the primary route to a destination is congested. So lots of uh, unknowns. Uh, there's been almost no discussion about what this additional features would, would cost. Uh, in some environments, uh, it has to be higher than the cost of the add-on because uh, the labor cost that you're removing uh, is also has to be passed on to, to someone. For instance, in the uh, automated delivery mechanism, uh, if you are getting a UPS package and that vehicle does not have a driver, that savings then can be added to the cost of the package somehow or it can be passed to the service entity like UPS and treated as profit or additional revenue. Lots of issues. And we haven't even talked on issues regarding liability or insurance or even criminal behavior, which has been recently reviewed. So it's a very, very interesting and very uncertain mile wide and an inch deep. Great. And I do want to touch on some of those items for, for our podcast. You mentioned something about when to expect it, and I, I find a lot of confusion in that. Some people say technology's here now. Next year, you'll see driverless trucks on the road, other things. I know you mentioned some things may take decades before they're, they're here. Our listeners probably hear the buzz about automated vehicles but don't know, is this something they need to be getting ready for now, or is it far enough away that it's not really an urgent concern? What What's the three- to five-year horizon, which I think a lot of our listeners are mm -hmm. trying to decide where their company needs to be positioned and what rules they need in place? What, what if anything, do you see on this front in that kind of time well, frame? Well, for some of the technologies, for instance, vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication where one vehicle warns another, for instance, that is too close. That technology is already available, and, and the feds are essentially asking now that the manufacturers develop standard communication mechanism, so it'll be uniform. Uh, that'll probably be uh, happening within the next uh, three to five years. The legal uh, issue also requires some attention. Uh, there are four states now have passed 
legislation that permits testing of vehicles. Uh, Nevada has uh, uh, one of the one of the leading entities. They're allowing both auto and truck uh, testing, and they also permit private citizen operation under certain circumstances. Michigan recently passed legislation that allows driverless cars on roads and also the platooning of trucks that is bringing the trucks closer together for more efficiency on highways. California was also uh, in the lead until recently when they basically couldn't get together with Google on some issues and uh, some of the vehicles were recently pulled out of the state and driven on a self-driving truck, ironically, to uh, nearby Nevada. So who knows what will happen there. Uh, The remaining states, uh, quite a few of them, 32, I think, have some legislation under discussion or studies underway. Uh, Nine have looked at at legislation and rejected it in one form or another. And then just in the last couple months, the feds have issued two regulational uh, rules that would require mandated vehicle-to-vehicle communications by the manufacturers to be on all cars within the next, I think, five years. And then a more lenient rule from the Federal Highway Administration, uh, not mandating but encouraging the state highway agencies to allow vehicle-to-road communication so that they can then begin to plan the roadway improvements and improvements to traffic signals and other roadside devices that would... How does that work? That's one I'm, that you had mentioned before that I think is very interesting. I mean, that you get... Your car would get signals back from your vehicle, get signals back from the road, or it would get signals from the traffic authorities that there's an accident up ahead. Yes, that would How be would an example. Work? That would be an example. Also, cues or congestion points. Mm-hmm. Also, warnings regarding uh, uh, construction activity or uh, weather events, uh, possibly special events. For instance, releases uh, from stadiums after big games, uh, right. choose your route right. sort of thing. Some of these could be oral, that is, they're brought to the driver, but others would be simply transmitted to the vehicle, and then the vehicle itself would take appropriate action, as you suggested earlier, this requires a feedback capability between knowing the exact location of the vehicle and uh, its trajectory, speed and direction, and uh, information then about that passed to the roadside sensor, and then an appropriate response returned in virtually five or six feet. Uh, That means a lot of data, a lot more preciseness in the data. Uh, One report I looked at said that uh, these systems require probably accuracy to less than a foot in terms of vehicle location. That's way below uh, where we are now with basically uh, cell phones are only within 20 or 30 feet of of your location. And and so uh, allowing that kind of preciseness to hundreds of thousands or millions of vehicles as they move requires very large uh, computer technology, very fast computer response and lots of storage, lots of storage. Yes. Well, and that but that raises something. I mean, Mark knows that I'm a privacy bug. Um, And, uh, you know, I've seen a number of things lately about police 
looking for car hacking information um, of criminals or suspects that they want to know. They want the information out of the car to tell them where that person was or where the car was at any given time. But what you're describing is essentially that the government, you know, once we have this set up, the system that you're describing, the government would know anyway where you were because it would have the record that 7,000 cars pass through this checkpoint in an hour. And, you know, these were the numbers of each of those vehicles. Right. And so they, 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 could, know. they could tell where you were. That's right. And where, where Ted started and yep. where he left the road and where he went to the foot. That's probably more than I want the government to know, but it's, it's going to be there. It's going to be there in the, in the records of that, that device as well as ultimately if the government runs this, it's going to be in the, in the records of the agency. So that raises all kinds of questions. The courts, have, as I understand it, have ruled that you can't breach the vehicle track from a, uh, let's say, a cell phone movement without the appropriate uh, legal background. Right, yeah, there, there, was a case, there was a really interesting case a couple of years ago called Jones in which the uh, Supreme Court basically said that it is unexpected that you would be, well, let me put it differently. It was decided that you needed a subpoena to monitor a car for a month. But it was decided by five different justices in two different ways. <laughs> um, the Scalia way uh, was, you know, where, whereas people don't have rights, property has rights. Um, and he, he basically decided that you that the minute that you put a control or a, a monitor on the car, that was a trespass. Um, however, if you read the concurrences, five justices also said that being uh, monitored for 30 days or more is not something you would expect to happen by having an electronic uh, monitor right. because the police just wouldn't have the manpower to actually follow you around for 30 solid days. Um, and so they said there was some issue with this. But, I mean, if we all see that our vehicles are being checked every two feet, um, and, and that's being saved someplace, then I suppose we wouldn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy at all. Well, it's very uncertain how this is going to get handled. Um, as I understand it, the courts have already prohibited the DOT from mandating GPS-based tracking in vehicles. And in fact, the new technology uh, regulations don't uh, require that. But as people discover that uh, their paths, and particularly their their regular paths or their out-of-the-way paths are, are known and retained, uh, that may raise very significant issues regarding the penetration of the technology and the diffusion of the technology into, into the market. I know I would not uh, do that. I wouldn't buy a, a car that had the possibility of tracking me. I suppose my cell phone would do it now, and if I engaged in some behavior that required someone to issue a warrant for my phone, then... I would have to comply, but well, I don't know that you're going to have a choice. No, you may. I don't know. It may be simply prohibited by fiat. Well, because the manufacturers, and one of the things we're finding in all of the Internet of Things space, but in this space in particular, is the manufacturers want that information. Yes. And so they will make sure that you can be tracked because they want to track you and right. they want to offer you value-added services as well. Right. And of course, then retailers would like to know where you go regularly. 
Um, perhaps insurance companies would like to be able to walk back from uh, an event to see what had happened in the previous uh, hour or two. Uh, I can think of all kinds of cases in which somebody would want to know this, but whether they're entitled to it and whether it should be provided, I guess we'll let the law evolve. Most of the documents that I've looked at regarding this and most of the lectures I've heard uh, end with the word uncertain. And it's probably the best word to describe where we are now. There's just so much uncertainty regarding penetration of the market, how many vehicles are we talking about and when, and features, what capabilities would there be in a typical vehicle, uh, much less talk about cost and benefit versus cost. Now, we haven't yet discussed, even looked at uh, second-order and third-order benefits related to, for instance, urban, urban planning or changes in activity patterns. You mentioned, uh, for instance, a chauffeur person being able to dump, if you will, the, the chauffeuring responsibility for children onto an autonomous vehicle and then using that time for other activities. So there could be very significant changes in household activity allocations and roles between family members, timing of uh, activities, particularly events that require household members to be present, dropping kids off at school, for instance. We just don't know. All of these things are possible. Most of the, the technical papers I've looked at are, are very speculative. They're all based on simulations or on surmises based uh, some on expertise and experience, but very little hard data on this at all. And almost nothing regarding activity shifts and, of course, legal issues have really not come into focus yet. Interesting. David, you told us some of the states that have moved towards allowing driverless vehicles. Is anything happening here in the Carolinas, North or South Carolina, either to explore it, any legislation in the works? Uh, I'm not aware of anything. Uh, I looked uh, at the North Carolina situation in the last uh, couple of years. I didn't see anything regarding this. Uh, no legislators are talking about it. Uh, my brother is in, a, in the legislature in another state. And he says that that state is looking carefully at the issue, not so much from the testing viewpoint, but from the possibility uh, that manufacturing may be shifted to those states that have permissive rules. And, of course, manufacturing means jobs. And so the legislative hook is not so much the safety hook as it is the job hook. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised to, to see something happen in North Carolina or South Carolina this year uh, there's nothing on their on their programs yet and no bills filed, but it's early, so we might see something. And, and I know you mentioned some recent federal regulations. Do we have any indications of how a Trump administration might deal with this issue or whether it's going to be any different than the guidance that have been coming out of the Obama administration? Well, with respect to the vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle mandate, that rule, which was published in late December, is uh, one of the rules that's being reviewed for the 90-day slapdown, I guess we would call it. <laughs> uh, and it's possible it may be uh, amended or, or withdrawn. That one, I think, probably will stay largely intact because it doesn't really affect consumers if you don't push the button, so to speak, in your car. The second rule, which had to do more with vehicle-to-infrastructure control, uh, that is in draft form, and so it's more vulnerable. It's likely to be revised, but from what I heard last week, it, no one's saying very much about what the new folks uh, might might do. Um, 
Mr. Trump's view about using manufacturing, you know, as a job creation incentive here in the United States rather than overseas is also in the picture. I suspect we'll continue to move forward with the more unobtrusive elements of this, vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure, but uh, maybe slow down a little bit on on anything that approximates a mandate on uh, consumer behavior. And of course, they're interested also in uh, vehicle emissions issues or just some talk about rolling back some of those EPA rules. And so I would think the first couple of months here, we'll see discussion of, of other issues that consumers are concerned about. Everybody wants safety, of course. And so you know, technologies that improve or perhaps even eliminate uh, most accidents uh, would be welcomed. And they're mostly there fairly innocuous in terms of driver requirements. Even now, we have vehicle sensing systems that alert you to inappropriate action on your part or some other vehicle, but uh, none of them take control and move your vehicle in a different direction. You're still a driver. Uh, in all states, I think, still require a driver in the vehicle. No states, except in testing, that permit driverless vehicles to actually be on the road with other but I've folks. seen some advertisements for vehicles that stop themselves. Hmm. If they, you know, even if you haven't hit the brake, the car will hit the brake for right. you. Right. The classic article I saw was one where the author, this was in a trade pub, and the author reported on the ability of the tests of the driverless vehicle to detect a cow on the road and to take appropriate action to not hit the cow. And uh, so that article's been referred to a lot. Uh, I was not aware personally that uh, you could detect the difference between a cow and you know some other animal, a deer or whatever. But uh, out west, where my brother is in the legislature, that that is a big issue. Animals are on the road all the time. Uh, these are domestic animals I'm I'm speaking about. So that would be a big issue for some of the western states, particularly the cattle states. There was a video recently that got a lot of attention of, um, I can't remember if it was if it was in Holland or Denmark, uh, but a family was driving in their Tesla, and the Tesla actually predicted, did you see this? I have heard about it. Predicts the an accident, a car, so essentially two cars ahead. So not the car in front of them, the car in front of them. Wow. Um, and start before the accident, it, the video is unreal because you can see they're driving along and then all of a sudden the Tesla starts beeping and you can hear the brakes being applied. And then just instantaneously, a car ahead of them runs into, so uh, two cars ahead runs into three cars ahead. So the potential safety, I mean, that's, you know, that was a big issue. And a big gain for, and one of the big reasons for consumer interest and, of course, for the manufacturer's interest, uh, the productivity issue is a little less clear, but there clearly is significant value there. But as I said earlier, there's been almost no discussion about what the difference in price would be between a vehicle with that and one without it, and whether that difference in price over the life of the car is worth the probability of, of an accident reduction you know, or the value of time that one places on essentially sitting there while the rocket ship takes you to your 
your destination. <laughs> Although the pricing thing is fascinating to me. I remember once upon a time there's a big debate about airbags in cars, right? And you, mm -hmm. you, you, you gentlemen are both uh, old enough to remember that. I remember, you know, long discussions that airbags would be unbelievably expensive and the idea of requiring an airbag in every car would make cars out of the reach of modern Americans. And the government decided to require airbags anyway. You see the cost has come down. It's just part of doing business. It's no longer a big issue. And I do think there's a move towards requiring things like automatic braking and ABS. Um, I know there's a big push by Consumer Reports and other advocacy groups to say, let's make these mandatory. And that when you make them mandatory, like the backup camera, um, which is now mandatory on new vehicles, you know, it drives the price down. So I guess I, I wonder, David, if that's if, if that's the direction we go towards some of this automation being mandatory with the idea that that'll drive price down because it'll be in all vehicles. Uh, obviously, this is a, a magna, a, you know, um, probably a, a significant step beyond the, some of the technologies I just mentioned. If we really got a, you know, a self-driving car. Well, and of course, that gets into the question of fleet turnover. How long it would take for a high-quality product at a very low price to move into technology? Our experiences with uh, new technology, we almost always have underestimated significantly. Uh, I'm sorry, the other way around, uh, overestimated how long it would take. And uh, even devices like cell phones and even email, these uh, communication systems have diffused uh, through the population much more rapidly than their original opponents uh, thought. We haven't mentioned uh, some other implications. The planning literature is full of articles now surmising what would happen to traffic flow and urban land forms densities of cities. Uh, on one side, there's a, a group that says, you know, with half of the fleet of these vehicles out there, if the vehicles are managed by a third-order party like an Uber, uh, that vehicle could then circulate doing a variety of, of tasks, and so people might not need a second car. That would free up the parking, would allow for denser development. Uh, and possibly considerably less uh, traffic or vehicle miles of total traffic. On the other side, there are more speculative, uh, if you will, naysayers who say, well, now, wait a minute, if you had this, one of these vehicles, you might convert the savings into more driving because you don't have to pay as much attention, it's less stressful, you can work while the vehicle's getting you there, that might spread out cities even further. It might encourage long-distance commuting, which is quite rare now. It's only about 2% of, of all commuting is greater than 50 miles, for instance. So for edge cities or for edge communities, it could essentially accelerate a wave of development further away, if you will, from the core. And uh, that's uh, uh, uncertain. Uh, no one that I've uh, looked at or know the articles or people I've talked to think that the uh, optimistic view is, is likely to prevail in the short term. Our streets are basically in place. Our development's in place. Uh, if you want to change development, you have to go through the zoning process in most cities, even here. <laughs> so, you know, what's a house and what's a, a commercial facility? You know, usually that takes 30, 40 years for a city to convert its property significantly from a lower density to a higher density. Charlotte's right in the in the midst of doing that now, as you know. And uh, that wave of development will continue to spread out from the downtown. But it'll be a very long time before, say, Ballantyne or 
or South Park is uh, 15, 20, 30 stories on the average. Probably, well, certainly won't happen in my professional career. <laughs> but beyond that, we just don't know. Uh, this is one of the most disruptive technologies that we've seen. But there were other earlier ones, as you mentioned. The folks who brought in the steamboat systems in the early 1800s, they were confronted with the same huge changes in technology that, that uh, changed the uh, travel times between cities. You know, we, we don't think about this very often, but essentially for 2,000 years, you walked if you wanted to go between cities. And there was really no commuting in the sense of more than two or three miles, even in ancient Rome or Persepolis or any of those, Athens, any of those ancient cities, everything was within essentially walking distance. And it only was in the beginning of the 1800s that first steamboat and then uh, railroad and then more recently streetcars, even bicycle technology in, in Europe in the late 1800s was a huge step forward in terms of how far you could get within a certain time. So has continued to happen, of course, as uh, privately owned vehicles came into the market in the early 1900s. And then even in our lifetimes, uh, the development of the interstate system significantly changed everything about our economy. When I was a child growing up in, in northern Maine in the 50s, we didn't have any fresh vegetables in the winter. We basically ate you know, cans, products, and, and cold uh, vegetables, potatoes and carrots and so on. And, of course, we didn't have anything from Mexico or Peru. Now you can go into any supermarket in any tiny town in Montana, and you'll see kumquats and ugly fruits and Peruvian pears on the shelves in the depth of winter. And they were brought there, of course, by trucks using the huge advantage of, in travel times that the interstate created. So these changes have been just so rapid and I think the autonomous technology will probably have a similar effect, but we won't know yeah. for another you it, know, two or three decades. Yeah, it's going to be exciting, exciting times. Um, we did get a couple questions from our listening audience, so I'd like to, to finish with those before we get to the trivia, which I know everyone's excited about. One is, says, uh, writes, my company makes parts for several auto manufacturers. How will advances in driverless cars impact me? So so they're supplying parts, and I guess either of you can, can answer that, but if they're a part manufacturer, what kind of things do they need to be thinking about as we move towards uh, vehicle automation? Well, if it's an electronic part, and that's where the action is here, uh, then certainly there are going to be some changes in design over the next, I would guess, three or four years. And that may require an incremental change in the nature of the workforce as well as the nature of the profit picture for the organization. If it's uh, mechanical parts that are given signals, for instance, the braking or acceleration or decel systems, those also are going to have to have new connected technology internally to the vehicle itself. So I guess I would keep my resume in shape if I were involved in that and uh, try to look ahead to see how the technology itself may affect not only the manufacturing of parts, but also the, the demand profile for what's 
what characteristics those new parts are going to have. Right. Well, and you can look ahead, too, and see that, for example, um, sensors are important here. So whatever part of the vehicle that you are making, whether it's brakes or emission systems or any, any number of other things, um, that is soon to be able to be connected to um, by sensors so that someone can tell whether it's breaking down or whether or not um, it's operating efficiently or whether it's time to make a change. Mm -hmm. um, so I would suggest from a parts standpoint um, that you take a look at what you're sensing right now um, as far as making those parts last longer um, or trigger um, when they can be changed before they actually break down. Great. No, I think those are good, and 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 obviously we've talked previously about cybersecurity, and I know the security of a car system and the ability to have people hack into that would be a concern too. So you're going to need to make sure that those IT systems in the vehicle are also going to be secure, like a lot of the other Internet of Things things we've talked about, Ted. Absolutely. That, that's well, they be... could, and and that's the thing. I mean, just because you may not be able to hack into one piece of the vehicle doesn't mean you can't hack into another part. So each one is going to have to be set up in a way that uh, you know that makes sure that that uh, data security and security of the functionality um, has been built into the system. Yeah, and then to go a little closer to home, perhaps to your listeners, there are some interesting ramifications for the legal profession. The articles I've looked at suggest that uh, the legal profession may move, if you will, away from uh, injury-related actions focused on individual drivers, but instead focus instead on vehicle manufacturers uh, and uh, manufacturers of the communications technology. And the software. And the software. Of what, of what kind of choices people are making, uh, the software is making, as to whether or not you know, in in a in a no win situation, whether whether you hit the car with two people, the car with three people, or they just let you plow into the the bank because you're only one person. Right. We have about two million miles of experience now in the testing of these vehicles, from what I've read recently, and I believe there's been only one fatality, mm -hmm. and that involved actually an individual who himself was a a software executive essentially operating a vehicle in the test mode. Uh, I haven't heard the, the ending of that story as to whether or not there was a settlement or what happened, but certainly it... it uh, no, but it was it a clear... communication issues. It was a clear software glitch, a clear software problem in that case that the vehicle was incorrectly reading um, the truck that was uh, in front of the the car, the autonomous right. vehicle, or the vehicle that was acting autonomously. You know, and, it, and it's obviously got major implications for insurance, right? All insurance mm -hmm. is now built around drivers and driver records and how are you going to purchase insurance, price insurance, if you've now got vehicles driving themselves? And is it you're going to insure the vehicle and does the owner provide that insurance? And do we shift it to more of a no-fault system or model it after some other transportation modes and look at railroad or other? You know, it's not—we've we, got a very much kind of fault-centered, driver-centric, 
Eric, you've got insurance, you hit somebody else, let the insurance companies work it out. And I think there's definitely room for major shakeup there as we start eliminating drivers. Absolutely. Yes. Every state, I guess, would have to redefine what, what it means to be a driver. If someone is sitting in a vehicle without a steering wheel and no control mechanism, then uh, if something happens with regard to safety, then uh, it would seem to me to be quite difficult to argue that the individual, that is the person in the vehicle, is somehow responsible. So there would have to be some redefinition of, of presence of individuals. Very interesting area. Almost all of it totally speculative. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, I sense a theme here in terms of uh, as many unknowns as knowns. Our next uh, audience question is from uh, someone that actually operates a car dealership. So they are selling cars and repairing cars and wondering what the market for cars and car repairs and car sales is going to be impacted. Are there going to be more enthusiasm because people you know, will buy cars even though they can't drive them because they want something to take them around and, and have, you know, more car sales, more vehicles on the roads, or, or the reverse. And, and it gets into a point you made earlier about sharing, and maybe people feel like they need to own it. Just like uh, there's some impact I've seen on ride sharing and the ability to, you know, simply get a, an Uber or a Lyft when you need it. You may not need that other car. If you can get someone to give you a ride to the, to the airport when you need it, you may not need to have the car. Any thoughts or anything you've seen, David, to say whether, you know, new car sales are going to go up or down or whether the, the car dealership that's kind of a fixture in the automotive industry is going to look differently because of this change? Well, let me put it this way. I'm looking at possibly replacing one of my family vehicles. I haven't asked that question of any dealer. And uh, the dealers that I do know, and I don't know a lot of dealers, but the dealers that I do know say they haven't really been issued speculative or futuristic kinds of, of statements yet from any of the manufacturers. We're still so early in this game. Uh, some, I think, or some dealers are worried that their liability may get caught up in the, uh, the chain, if you will, of responsibility uh, on this. Um, and then, of course, there's a price differential. We don't know what the differential in value or in the capital cost is going to be. Uh, initially, it might be like a Tesla situation where, yeah, you can you know, drive this vehicle, but it's going to cost you $80,000 for a technology that essentially is similar to a small gas-powered Yeah, but I, so. but I also think you're, I think some of it will be generational. I mean, I'm already seeing right now, I have a daughter in Silicon Valley, and um, neither she nor her roommate nor any number of her friends have vehicles because it's, you know, it costs, what, seven to $10,000 a year you know, that's even without the calculating in the actual payments on owning the vehicle, but it it costs an additional seven or ten thousand dollars a year for all the other incidents of ownership, and that buys a whole lot of Uber rides. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, if you're taking the train to work and you don't need you know too much other than to get to the store, especially if you're set up so that you can walk to some of the stores. 
Um, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of people moving into urban areas who are going to be less likely to want or to have cars. But I think you're going to see it's like television right now. Those of us, uh, you know, at least on on three sides of the table here are are, are old enough to have our uh, our our television habits set uh, in in stone at the moment. But I know that my kids generally who are older, either in college or out of college, don't feel the need to own a television because they just watch on their computer what they want to watch. And I think it'll be similar with cars. Plus, as David said, I think you're also going to see when this actually does become something that a dealer can sell, looking toward very specific types of people, either, you know, Parents of multiple children that want that that want to be able to send their kids around and not waste the three hours a day that it takes to drive them. Uh, the elderly, you know, who may who may just want to use that, or even uh, travelers. I mean, places like hotels, you know, may want to have a fleet of these kinds of vehicles so that when you come to the hotel. You just get in the vehicle and tell them where you want to go, and it's like having a, you know, a hotel van right now, but they don't need to have a driver for it. So, I mean, I think you're going to see things that we're not even thinking about, but applications that become natural to some class of people. Right. <laughs> um, and, and then they'll say, well, we'd like to have a whole fleet of these cars. That's a great point, and it leads to our last audience question, which was, has anyone looked about how driverless cars might impact the rental car industry? And, and obviously, that, I think, Ted, you just hit on something that, you know, is it different when you—a lot of rental cars are at airports or at other places with people traveling, but it might also tie into the whole ownership question about, do I have to own a car, you know, if I can rent one? And particularly if I now, with a driverless vehicle, I don't have to go to a rental car or I don't have to wait for uh, a car to come pick me up. I can simply dial it on my computer and have the car show up uh, at my house given instructions for where I want to go. And when I'm done with it, it scurries on back to some central holding ground or an area where a bunch of, of cars are parked. You could really see transformation in that rental car space. And again, I, I don't know, David, if anyone's written about it or, Ted, if you've got thoughts, but it seems like another area where you begin to get this merger between ride sharing, vehicle sharing. You know, there's been some push to shared ownership of vehicles. Right, it's so, going to be much more fluid as, right. as this works its way in because of what we we just said. I mean, if I know that my hotel in Florida, if I'm going to get out of the cold, has a fleet of, of vehicles that will come pick me up at the airport, I don't really need to worry about a taxi. I don't need to worry about renting a car, um, especially if I know they'll pick me up at the airport and then be available for me in all likelihood uh, if I want to you know, go to the zoo the next day. Well, that's right. And when you when you rent a car, essentially you're you're paying 